Good afternoon, and let me add my greeting to Brian's welcome to this gathering of Covenant Hope Church. We will continue our series in Daniel, so if you will, please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8. It will be helpful to be looking at your Bible, not just at the bulletin, because I will be pointing some things out from Daniel 7 as well. So as you turn there, let me pray and ask God to be with us as I preach his word. Heavenly Father, we are grateful, grateful that you have given us your word and that your word is breathed out by you, that all of it is true, that it is useful, that it's profitable for us, that it corrects us, that it challenges us, that even at times like today, In this particular part, when it's difficult to understand, we trust that you work through the preaching of your word and that you help us by your spirit to understand it rightly. And that even when we look at difficult passages like this one, not just difficult to understand, but even that holds difficult truths, we trust that it is for our good, that it will build us up, that it will help us to know you rightly that it will lead us to worship you, and that it will strengthen our faith to endure to the end. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. During the Second World War, a woman called Corrie Ten Boom, some of you may know that name, she and her family were uh, Dutch watchmakers. And they were during the Nazi occupation, were using their home as a refuge for Jews that were running away from the Nazi party. Jews who were fleeing the secret police who would capture them, take them away to prison camps, and they would end up dead. And so Corrie ten Boom and her family built a hiding place within their home with a secret compartment, and they managed to provide food for hundreds of Jews to harbor them there and then to sneak them out so that they could flee and escape the Nazi party. Corrie ten Boom and her family, though, were caught eventually by the police. They were taken to prison. She, her sister, Betsy, and her father. Her father died shortly after that in prison, And she and her sister Betsy were ushered away to a political concentration camp where they were treated very, very poorly, as you can imagine. Her sister Betsy died in that prison. But shortly before she died, Betsy told Corrie, there is no pit that is so deep that God is not deeper still. There is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. Later on in her life, Corrie was asked about how did she persevere? How did she persevere in her faith in a good God despite the overwhelming difficulties that she had faced? And her response was this, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets very dark. You don't throw away your ticket and jump off the train. You hold on. You sit still and you trust the engineer. 
that message is really at the heart of the same message that we'll see from Daniel chapter 8 today. Daniel 8 is an encouragement for us, those that are trusting in God to hold on. Knowing that God reigns over our darkest days, but they won't last forever. Hold on. Knowing God reigns over our darkest days, but they won't last forever. That's the main point of Daniel chapter 8, which comes swiftly on the heels of Daniel chapter 7 that we looked at last week. Now, if you recall Daniel 7, it was this, the first of four visions we'll see in Daniel. And Daniel chapter 7 was sort of like a panorama picture. You know that fairly recent uh, feature that they have on iPhones, I think other phones have it as well, where you take out your phone and you can kind of scan the whole horizon before you. And you move your camera across and you can capture the wide angle view of a, of a beautiful terrain of some sort. Well, Daniel chapter 7 was kind of like the panoramic picture of all of human history with a series of beastly kingdom after beastly kingdom after beastly kingdom, and then the judgment of the Ancient of Days and the consummation of the eternal kingdom of the Son of Man who came on the clouds of heaven and the kingdom that was given to the saints. That was Daniel chapter 7. And so what we see in the final three visions, here in Daniel chapter 8 is one vision, then 9 is another, and then 10, 11, 12 will be the final vision. What we see in these next three visions is sort of a zoom in on part of the panoramic view that we saw in 7. And so it's helpful to keep all of Daniel 7 kind of in your mind, and so we'll jump in there a little bit as we go. But when we face dark days, as we'll see that God's people will in this passage, When we face dark days, suffering, pain, and sorrow, how do we hold on? How do we hold on? And I think we'll see that Daniel chapter 8 answers that in two ways. Number one, expect them. Expect dark days ahead, knowing that God is in control. And that's our first point. Expect dark days knowing that God is in control. Look back at chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. They kind of lay out the setting of Daniel's vision. Daniel's vision, we're told, it came in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar in chapter 8, verse 1. And we were told that the first vision, that was the first one that appeared to him, he says, that that was in 7, that was in the first year. So this is two years after chapter 7. Two years later. And already we know that seven and eight happened before chapter five chronologically. So we're back in time still in terms of the the chronology of the story. This all happened before the lion's den. This happened before Belshazzar and the writing on the wall that he saw. This is during Belshazzar's third year in reign. In this vision... Daniel sees, he says that he saw that he was in Susa, a citadel, a city in the province of Elam. 
Now, Susa was approximately 200 miles away from Babylon where Daniel was located. So it's kind of like in his vision, he's transported to another place. Susa is in modern day Iran. It's just north of the Persian Gulf, maybe 150 miles north of the Arabian Gulf. And it was the winter residence for the Persian kings. Belshazzar, remember, was a Babylonian king. And so we see in Daniel's vision, he's transported away from Babylon, the kingdom that he's a part of, and he's transported to the next world power, the Persian Empire or the Medo-Persians. As Daniel stands by this canal in Susa in foreign territory, he sees another series of animals and horns similar to what he had seen in chapter 7. First, we're told that he just sees standing by the canal a ram. A ram is a male goat for anyone that's wondering. I wondered that this week and found that out, that a ram is a male goat. And so this male goat, uh, sorry, not goat, sheep, a male sheep. This ram is described in verses 3 and 4. And we're told, look there in verses 3 and 4, this ram has two horns. One of those horns is higher than the other. It's kind of uh, uneven. And that this ram is charging north and south and west, conquering. Nobody can stand before this beast, and no one can rescue from this beast's power. So this ram is invincible. This ram is seemingly unstoppable. Daniel begins to wonder about this ram. He's curious. He doesn't know what it means. But as he's wondering, as he's pondering, behold, a male goat appears. And this goat is described in verses 5 through 8, and we're told that he came from the west. He came flying over the face of the earth. He's not even touching the ground. It's like he's floating or flying somehow. Perhaps you've watched one of those nature documentaries and you've seen when animals run and at points, none of their feet are touching the ground. And if they run fast enough, it looks like they're not even touching. Maybe that's what it's describing. It's coming so fast, it doesn't even touch the ground. And this is just not any ordinary goat. We're told that this goat has a very prominent, it's a, a conspicuous or, or noticeable horn between its eyes. So, so it kind of looks like some sort of weird unicorn sort of thing with this big horn between its eyes. And the goat ran at the ram and in its powerful wrath, it destroys the ram. It strikes the ram, the ram's horns are broken, it's trampled to death. The seemingly unstoppable ram is now utterly destroyed, it's powerless to protect itself from the floating goat. Now the goat is seemingly unstoppable. Now the goat seems that no one can rescue from its power. But look there in verse 8. Just as soon as we're told that it grew exceedingly great and strong, the great horn on its head, this unicorn, breaks. And now it grows into four horns in its place. Again, we're seeing another very strange, vivid vision that God had given. This apocalyptic vision with lots of symbols and symbolism. And we talked much about that last week. 
We saw last week in Daniel chapter 7 that beasts and horns symbolized kings and their kingdoms. And so Daniel chapter 8 is zooming in on those beasts that we had seen in chapter 7. It's in fact zooming in on the second and the third beasts of that vision. Those were found in chapter 7 verse 5 and chapter 7 verse 6. If you remember from last week, the second beast had been described as a devouring bear. A bear with still having ribs hanging out of its mouth, the carcass of an animal that it's just devoured. And it was raised up on one side. It was uneven, like this goat with uneven horns. And last week, if you recall, maybe not, the details might be blurry to you, but we said that it was corresponding to the Medo-Persian Empire. The the empire that I told you had conquered the Babylonians. We saw that in chapter 5 with Darius dying and, um, sorry, Belshazzar dying and Darius the Mede taking over. But now the beast that Daniel saw is a rampaging ram. And Daniel sees it in Persian territory. And if we had any doubt whatsoever, our suspicions are confirmed. Jump down to verse 20 with me at the interpretation that the angel gives Look at verse 20. The angel simply tells him, the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. This is the combined empire of Media and Persia, represented as a rampaging ram. And if we continue, we see in verses 21 and 22 that the floating goat is the king of Greece. We don't have to guess who these animals represent any longer. Now we're told this first king, though, the one, the big horn that was on the front of the head of the goat, it's exceedingly great. But when he was strong, he was broken. And four nations arise from him. But not with the same kind of power that this first king had. So the angel tells us what this means. And this corresponds to Daniel chapter 7, verse 6, the leopard. The leopard that had four heads. Now we have this goat with four horns. It's weird, right? It's very strange. And if you recall from last week, it's supposed to be weird. It's supposed to be strange. Maybe you're even lost at the descriptions that I'm already giving. But these descriptions are meant to communicate something to us. Daniel saw all of this. I don't know if you noticed that when Sarah read it for us earlier. It repeats the vision that I saw, I saw, I saw, and behold. God didn't just give Daniel a piece of paper and say, here's the next two empires that are coming, Daniel. We're intended to visualize this. You're intended as you read chapters like this to try and picture it in your mind to experience it more like a movie than you would a letter, more like a picture book. Now, maybe you're wondering, what's the point, Mark? What are you trying to make? What's, what's the big deal about visualizing it? Well, take a moment to, to compare and contrast these two beasts with the ones that we saw last week. Maybe just for a moment, imagine in your mind, if the doors at the back of the hall burst open, And a disfigured bear with a carcass hanging out of its mouth came in and started attacking people. You would freak out, right? No one's reacting, but 
you would freak out. It would be distressing. You'd run for that door right now. And then imagine that door burst open and a leopard with four heads jumped out. That would be terrifying. We would all freak out. Me first. Now I want you to visualize the same thing, but with a ram, with one little horn and one big horn coming through that door. And then a floating goat through this door. And it's got a big horn, so it's a little bit scary. I would freak out a little bit. I don't really like farmyard animals. But you get the difference, right? One is a ferocious meat-eating animal, and one is sort of a domesticated farmyard animal. God is showing Daniel this picture for a reason. We'll see. These Don't get me wrong. These beasts are destructive. But Daniel is showing that these kingdoms, they're under his control. They're like domestic animals. So what Daniel is seeing is the rise and fall of the Medo-Persian Empire and the rise and the fall of the Greek Empire. What we see in just two or three verses is actually an incredibly large span of time. It's about the next 400 years going on from Daniel's time into the future. And that's why Daniel was instructed to seal up this vision. Seal it up and put it away. It's for many days from now. It's for the time of the end. This is for the distant future from Daniel. He won't get to see the fulfillment of all of this prophecy. But what's really fascinating is the level of specificity and the detail that's spelled out here by Daniel Uh, by God to Daniel and from Daniel to Israel and to us. Within a decade of Daniel's vision, as we've already seen the Medes and the uh, Persians, they conquer the almighty Babylon. Babylon who had seemed like the powerhouse of the world just 70 years before when Daniel was first taken into captivity. They had seemed unstoppable, but now they have come to nothing. And then God shows Daniel that an incredibly powerful king from Greece will conquer even more. And from our vantage point in history, we know exactly who this king from Greece, this powerful one was. Many of you will know the name, Alexander the Great. At 20 years old, he began conquering. He went from the west all the way across the whole earth. His kingdom was established. He led his men into battle. So many times, it's, I read about Alexander this week, and it, it's kind of astonishing. He was so br- brave or stupid or something, he would lead the men into battle and was so often nearly killed. But he conquered lands all the way from Europe in the west to India in the east, and all the way down into parts of Africa and into Egypt and other parts of Africa. One historian said, as I was reading this week about Alexander the Great, that he was brave with the bravery of a man who disbelieves his own mortality, didn't think he could die. He had a sort of godlike certainty in his survival, whatever risk that he chose to run. There was no hint that he ever showed fear at all, or that he even ever felt fear. 
But Alexander's confidence was misplaced. Alexander was not invincible, just as God had said. When he was strong, the great horn was broken. Alexander conquered the whole world, but he was conquered by illness. He fell ill with a fever, and just 10 days later, 11 days later, he died at the age of 32, younger than I am now. Alexander didn't have an heir. He had a wife who was pregnant, but no living heir who was old enough to take over his place in ruling the Greek empire, and so it was divided among his generals into four empires that arose in its place, just as God had foretold that it would. It's important for us to take a step back and to consider what is this vision, what is it supposed to mean for Daniel and for those that were in exile in Babylon? God isn't just flexing his muscles to Daniel and saying, hey guys, I know and ordain the future. No, God was speaking to his suffering people, his people who were conquered and were in exile. And he was reminding them that he's still in control. Despite their present circumstances, God was still in control. Daniel and the exiles were looking forward and longing to see the exile come to an end. Daniel would have known that God's promises through the prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah would be fulfilled and that the exile would come to an end after 70 years, that a remnant would return. Some faithful Jews would return to Judah and they would rebuild their lives, they would rebuild the temple that had been destroyed, and so Daniel was looking forward to that. But God was telling them that though the exile may end, Their suffering wouldn't. They'd return home, but they'd still be held captive to the empires of the world. In fact, their suffering wouldn't just continue, it would actually get worse. And that's the final part of the vision as we see in verses 9 through 12. Look at verses 9 through 12. These form the climax of this vision that Daniel saw. Out of one of the four horns came a little horn. This horn grew exceedingly great towards the south and towards the east and towards the glorious land, the land of Canaan. Now, it would be easy to be confused. I know I've been quite confused as I've been studying these passages, but this is not the same little horn that we saw in Daniel chapter 7. There are some similarities between these two horns, but that one grew up out of the fourth beast, if you recall. That one grew up and had many eyes and a mouth and was boasting great things. It waged war against God and his people. But this little horn is coming out of the goat. It's coming out of the goat, which was the third kingdom. That still sounds strange to say. Daniel sees that the horn grew uh, grew to have great power, that it waged war against the host of heaven, it says, that he threw down some of the host and some stars and trampled them underfoot. We're going to talk about what that means. And that this horn became even as great as someone called the prince of the host. And he'll take away the burnt offering and he will destroy the sanctuary, that is God's temple. 
The, the angel helps Daniel know what all of these things mean in verses 23 through 25. The horn, he explains, is a king of bold face, one who understands riddles who shall arise. Now, now honestly, this doesn't capture the meaning very well, at least in my opinion, because no one actually speaks like this and it doesn't sound very threatening at all. I mean, have you ever heard anyone being described as having a bold face? And then it says, who's good at solving riddles. That sounds a little nerdy, not very terrifying and terrible. I think other translations capture the idea of what is being translated here better when they say, this is a fierce looking king and a master of intrigue. This king will be ruthless. He'll be a keen strategist, cunning in war, and he'll be very deceptive. He'll destroy many mighty men, we're told. These mighty men are probably Jewish leaders who probably correspond to the stars that were thrown down in the vision from earlier. Many of the people who are the saints, the host of heaven, will also be killed. And so the host of heaven, I think, is referring to God's people, those who belong to his heavenly kingdom. This king will spread lies, and in his own mind, he will be so great that he'll even rise up and oppose the prince of princes. I think that's, he's opposing God himself. Again, from our vantage point in history, we know who this is referring to. There's almost unanimous agreement on who this refers to. When the Greek empire broke into four parts following the death of Alexander, from one of those kingdoms, those empires that arose, a man called King Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And his name, Antiochus Epiphanes, it means God manifest. He obviously took this title for himself. If you see him, you've seen God, basically. He conquered Judah. He attacked the temple in 167 BC. He ordered the slaughter of thousands of Jews, and then he sold many, many, many more into slavery. He threw truth to the ground by outlawing Jewishness. Jewish customs such as circumcision was banned, outlawed. You couldn't celebrate the Jewish feasts and festivals of remembering and celebrating God's faithfulness in the past. You could no longer follow the dietary restrictions that were inscribed in God's law, and the Sabbath was no longer allowed to be observed. In addition to that, he also made owning a copy of the Torah a capital offense. Keeping God's word, having it, was a capital offense. And if, if all of that weren't bad enough, Antiochus IV built an altar to Zeus in the temple of God that had been rebuilt after they went back from exile. He invited vile pagan practices with cult prostitutes to take place in God's temple. The Holy of Holies was desecrated and they sacrificed unclean animals upon the altar. It's hard to imagine anything more evil and wicked and wretched and demonic. Murder. Blasphemy, idolatry, immorality, persecution, 
the vilest of things imaginable. And yet, God knows it all. Here in Daniel 8, he said it hundreds of years before it happened. He sovereignly ordains it, and he tells it before it is. Why? Why would God show this to Daniel? What good would it be for Daniel to know this? And for those who would face such sufferings to hear about it? What good is it even for us 2,000 so many years later to think about it today? I think the most important thing for us to know, the thing that we need to grasp onto and to hold onto as tight as we can is to the fact that God is in control despite your present circumstances. No matter how bad they may seem, we're tempted when things get dark to think God must not be in control. God must not be there. He must not care. What trial are you facing? What seemingly unstoppable problem do you face? God knows it. God knows all about it. There is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. The Bible, just like here in Daniel chapter 8 and in many other parts of Scripture, is very frank about the reality of wickedness and evil and suffering. The Bible is raw, it's honest, because it's true. Dark days lay ahead for Daniel, and no wonder at the end of this chapter we hear that he was so overcome he lay in his bed sick for days. He was appalled by what he had seen, the darkness of the things that he had witnessed in this vision. Sometimes the Bible reveals hard truths to us, but they are for our good, brothers and sisters. God revealed this to Daniel and his people so that they wouldn't be surprised when it took place, so they'd know that he was in control, so that they would be prepared to expect suffering, resting in the fact that God was not absent. No, he was in complete control, seated on his throne. The Lord Jesus warned his own followers that the same lay ahead for them too and for us. He said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars and see that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. They will put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The Apostle Peter says the very same thing. Beloved, beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters. Expect dark days. Expect suffering. Expect darkness. Prepare for those days ahead. By trusting in the Lord now. 
Many wonder, why does God ordain such dark things like we see here? Why does God allow such suffering to take place in the world and in our own personal lives, even to God's own people? Why does he allow that? Now, there, is, there isn't any simple one-size-fits-all answer to that question. God doesn't promise to or give us the answer for all of our suffering or what he intends for it to produce in us specifically. But the answer to the ultimate question of why is there suffering, why is there pain and sorrow in this world, is answered right there in the middle of verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. Three words. Because of transgression. Why is there sin? Why is there suffering in the world? Because of sin. It's because of sin that there is pain and sorrow. If we went all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we're told that when God made all things, they were very good. There was no pain. There was no death. There was no sickness or sorrow or suffering. And God had promised Adam and Eve that if they rebelled against him, If they rejected his word, if they rejected his rule, that they would surely die. Sin brought suffering into the world, friends. Sin brought suffering and death into our lives. And more specifically here in Daniel chapter 8, the reason why God's people had suffered and would continue to suffer was because of their own sin. It was because of their unfaithfulness to God and failing to keep his covenant. And just as God had promised, they faced the curses of the covenant, like Adam and Eve had done before them. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that every time you suffer, it's because you sinned against God and that he's punishing you somehow. No, that's not the case. God does sometimes discipline, not punish his children when we sin, but sometimes, many times, that we suffer just at the hands of other sinners, other people sinning against us. This would take place, we would see, even um, during these days that Daniel describes that many people suffered at the hands of other people's sin. Daniel saw dark days ahead for his people, dark days that God had ordained were part of his plan, part of his perfect and glorious plan. Even the darkest day that we could ever imagine, the darkest day that ever has been, was part of God's sovereign plan. God isn't distant from his people in suffering. No, he's not far off. He's not detached. God sent his son the Lord Jesus Christ, to suffer. The Son of Man came because, not of his transgression, but because of our transgressions, because of our sins. Jesus Christ came to suffer many things and to die and to rise again triumphant from the grave. And when he died, when he died on that cross, 2,000 years ago, the land went dark. The sun stopped shining. Darkness fell over the land. And this wasn't just a physical death that Jesus endured, though it was that. He physically died. No, he endured the wrath of God, the darkness of sin upon himself. 
He bore the sins of his people so that they wouldn't have to face darkness for all eternity. They wouldn't have to face God's judgment and wrath forever. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, you can be saved from the wrath of God by turning from your sins and trusting in his son today. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' death at the cross proves, proves that we can trust him even in the midst of suffering. Jesus' death and resurrection from the grave and the inheritance and promises of the hope of all eternity to be with him gives us great joy and comfort even when we face dark days ahead. The hymn, Whate'er My God Ordains is Right, captures beautifully the idea of resting in the knowledge that God's in control, that He ordains all things and He ordains them rightly. It says this, Whate'er my God ordains is right. Though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart, I take it all, unshrinking. Knowing that God ordains all things rightly, even bitter things, things that make our hearts faint, empowers us to hold on, unshrinking. The hymn continues, it's an incredible song. It says, whate'er my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to Him I leave it all. And so to Him I leave it all. We leave the future. We leave even difficult days ahead in the hands of our Heavenly Father. Sometimes we might think that knowing the future would be better than living in ignorance, but better yet than knowing the future is to leave it up to God. Let Him handle the future and trust yourself to Him knowing that He's in control and that He's loving and merciful and gracious and all wise. God is good. Trust Him. Even in the midst of dark days. A common question for those who are facing difficulty and suffering is how long is this going to last? How long do I have to hold on? And that's the question that concludes Daniel's vision in verses 13 and 14. Look there. This is our second point. It's shorter than the first point. Remember that your suffering won't last forever. Remember your suffering won't last forever. Following the vision, while it's still in the vision, but following the vision of the goat and the horn, Daniel overhears two holy ones speaking to one another, two angels most likely. And one of the angels asks another angel, for how long is the vision? But when the angel responds, it says that he spoke to Daniel. So clearly this answer and this question and answer thing was for Daniel's benefit and for our benefit. It says, he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. The conclusion is that the devastation, the suffering, the desecration of God's temple, it's not going to last forever. Praise the Lord. Suffering won't last for all time. Worship will be restored. God's people will return to him. 
Now, how long is it going to be? Well, 2,300 evenings and mornings. Pretty simple, right? No, no, it's not. Scholars go back and forth and they debate how exactly to interpret these 2,300 evenings and mornings. Some of them say maybe 2,300 evenings and mornings is 2,300 days, which seems to make sense. That's approximately six years and three months. That might be symbolic for something less than seven. Seven is the number of wholeness or completeness or totality, basically saying it's not going to last forever. It's not going to be complete. That might be one way to read it. Or maybe it refers to 2,300 evening and morning sacrifices that were ceased during the temples being desecrated. Now, if that were the case, you know, when Antiochus the fourth came in in 167 BC, then 2,300 evening and morning sacrifices wouldn't be equal to days. It would be half that amount. It'd be 1,150 days, about three years and two months. I had to work hard to do that maths. Now, this is actually kind of an interesting theory because... That's almost exactly the number of days. It's not quite, it's kind of a rounded up figure of the exact number of days, almost, of the time that the temple was destroyed and was desecrated and between then and when the Maccabean revolt happened and they re-consecrated the temple and cleansed it and started back up the sacrifices again. And so it's a possible theory. Now, remember, don't lose the, the forest for the trees. Whichever answer it is, God wanted his people to know that in the midst of their trials, in the midst of their suffering, he was with them and that their suffering would not last forever. Now, that seems pretty obvious, right? Your suffering won't last forever. But when you're in the midst of difficult days, when it gets dark, when the storm clouds come in, That's one of the hardest things to hold on to, right? It's easy to imagine that this suffering, this painful thing that you're facing, it will never end. We think our pain will last forever. But God wants you to know, brothers and sisters, the storm, it might not pass swiftly, but it will pass. It will Maybe, maybe you're in the midst of some trial right now, some really difficult circumstance or situation. You're suffering. Maybe it's some physical affliction that you've got, some sickness. Maybe your every day is painful just to get up and out of bed. Or maybe it's depression. Maybe getting out of bed is not difficult because it's physically painful, but because there's emotional pain. Because... Depression, the clouds of darkness come in and your thoughts are afflicting you. Maybe you've been pleading with the Lord for a long time to take this away, to make it stop, and it just hasn't. Maybe perhaps the pain that you're facing, the suffering is actually self-inflicted like the people of Judah. Maybe it's because of your own sin that there are scars, memories, 
Maybe it's the ongoing struggle against sin that keeps tearing you down and it won't stop. It won't go away. You're fighting, but it's painful. Perhaps it's not sickness or sin. Maybe it's circumstances. You're longing for something that you don't currently have. You, you know it's, it's a good thing to want. It's not a bad thing. Perhaps it's a, a relationship or, or a spouse or a child. Maybe it's a family member that you long for them to know the Lord or a broken relationship that you wish would be restored. Maybe it's something just as simple as a job that doesn't suck. Or just any job. Maybe you are longing for a job. Whatever it is, brothers and sisters, I promise you, that suffering, that pain, it won't last forever. God knows you. He knows your pain. He hasn't abandoned you. The Lord Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. He's acquainted with griefs and sorrows and pain. He's been abandoned by friends. He's been hurt by family. He's interceding even now for you. And he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never fail you. He promises to you. He's coming back very soon. And he promises that when he comes, he will right every wrong. He will strengthen every weakness. He will wipe away every tear. He will heal every wound. He will comfort every sorrow. He will make all things new. One way that you and I will endure in our faith till the end during dark days is by keeping one eye fixed on Jesus, one eye fixed on eternity. The Apostle Paul reminded the Corinthians that we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're temporary. They're disappearing. But the things that are unseen, they're eternal. They will never pass away. They'll go on forever. Keep an eye on eternity, brothers and sisters. Especially during the presence of dark days of suffering in your life. And they'll make this suffering shrink just a little bit in the light of the weight of the glory of eternity. Daniel was overcome by the vision that he'd seen. He didn't really understand it. But he rose from his bed and he went about the king's business. In the end, we're not to live in fear or dread about the suffering that we will face. No, we're to live our lives faithful to the Lord and what he has entrusted us to do. When the course of our lives enters the tunnels of dark days and we know that they will, sit still. Hold on to your faith. Know that your loving Heavenly Father is in control and that He has the future mapped out. Despite the darkness, there is a certain end. 
The train will come out on the other side and because of Jesus Christ, we'll see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we'll be free from sin and suffering forevermore in his glorious presence. That is good news, brothers and sisters. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would grant us grace to endure to the end. We know that if it was up to us, we would never keep our hold on you, and you must hold us fast, and so we trust you that you will. If we suffer, we pray that we would entrust our souls to you, our faithful creator, and that we would continue to do good. We pray that you would be glorified in our lives, and we pray In the name of Jesus, for these things. Amen.